All right. Um, I realize that we are Bible-less in here, and I don't know where they went. <laughs> so if you've got a Bible, grab one. Um, if you don't pull out your phone or, like, squeeze closer to uh, Zach, he looks lonely. He's got a Bible. I want to come sit by him. I wanted to begin with random thoughts by Jordan uh, this morning. As many of you know, I'm working um, about halfway, midway through my doctorate, and I'm wrapping that up, and my point of my research right now are the Christian practices, the things that we do that make us Christian. And of course, one of the things that we make, make us do is prayer. Uh, so I wanted to br- just share an insight that I had with you. I don't know if it'll attach to the actual sermon or not, but just kind of a freebie, here you go. Um, I, uh, they've done psychological studies about the power of lifting your arms. You notice that like when somebody... Thank you, Eric. I appreciate the participation. Uh, whenever you, when you see those like racers, for instance, in the Olympics, and they like cross that finish line, the first one across the finish line, what's he do or she do? Right, victory. Right, oh, victory. In fact, we, they discovered through uh, testing that, that like all primates do this, like monkeys do this, like everyone does this because what you're doing is you're expanding yourself, you're making yourself big, like it's victory. As I came to that, as I was reading about that and thinking about that, I thought there's interesting passages in the Bible. Two passages in particular, one in Hebrews chapter 12 and one in 1 Timothy, I can't remember. And in both of those places, in Hebrews, we're told to lift our limp hands. And in uh, 1 Timothy, Paul tells the people that he wants to see them lift holy hands in prayer. I always conceived of this as an idea of like, you know, like I'm being pious. It's sort of like gentle, like I'm lifting my hands to God, like, like daddy hold me or something like that. I don't know. But suddenly I thought, what if it's more victory? What if we're told to lift our hands up in prayer because we are claiming victory over whatever it is we're praying over? We aren't lifting our hands just in supplication, but we're lifting our hands saying, God, you are the God of the universe, the God who who defeated death, the God who made everything I see, and I lift my worries and fears and problems and desires and brokenness up to you because you are the one who has victory. That changes those texts around in my mind. That's unrelated to what we're going to talk about today. Well, I guess it's kind of related. Uh, I was thinking about um, myself after last week's very harsh sermon and uh, the criticism I received from Randall Baas about it. He had many complaints to share with me. And I was thinking that I've been called a lot of things. I had this, I had this experience in, in college. In college, um, I was, I don't remember if I was a freshman or a sophomore, but it didn't matter because I was a jerk both years. And we were sitting in the classroom, and the professor says, I want, you know, go around, tell me your name, tell me your name, and tell me your spiritual gift. And so everyone's kind of going around, you know, saying really pious things. And I didn't know really what to say, and so I stood up, I said, my name's Jordan, I have the gift of skepticism. And he thought that was funny, which meant that we were off to a good start, because that could have gone really bad. I've been called a lot of things. I've never been called an optimist. I've never been called an optimist. And last week we dealt with some really hard truths. There are some really hard truths in this. There's this warning that runs throughout this letter that's pleading with these Christians. Whatever you do, do not give up on Jesus. 
And there are these warnings that go along with it. Like, if you give up on Jesus, what's left for you? But along with this vein of dire warnings is a continuous, thundering message of hope. That the Bible is deeply optimistic. The Bible is deeply optimistic. After those warnings come out, we talked about this a little bit in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 6. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and... Oh, actually, you know what? Did I give it to you? Oh, I forgot to tell you the name of the sermon. Are you ready? This is really good. I never name things well. Are we ready? It's Optimus Time. <laughs> huh? Because, because it's Optimus Prime, right? That's pretty awesome. I was like, oh, that's genius. So if you see a meme go out this week with Optimus Prime on it on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, you know, just give it a share so everyone can enjoy my genius. <laughs> we have these two, two lines in chapter 6. I'm giving you these verses because I, I realized I didn't have Bibles to hand out because I don't know where they are. <laughs> but verse 9 says this, though we speak in this way, and so that, that was that threatening, that, that warning passage that we talked about earlier. Uh, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved... If no one's called you beloved today, hear it from me. You are beloved. If your spouse doesn't think so, or your kids don't think so, or your parents don't think so, or your friends don't think so, the Bible calls you beloved. Beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to what? We're going to have some audience participation. You're in creative seats. I have to keep you awake, right? Read the text. Things that belong to what? Salvation. Salvation. And it's a good word, isn't it? That's optimistic. That's hopeful, isn't it? Verse 11. And we desire each one, uh, each one of you to show the same earnestness to have what? The full assurance. How much? Full, full assurance of faith of hope unto the end, so that you may not be sluggish. Again, that warning, like, keep that in the back of your mind. Like, don't be lazy about this thing, but have that full assurance. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited promises. And that's hopeful. I love those two words. I'll give them to you. Full assurance of faith that we might inherit promises. Like I said, there is every reason for us to lay hold of great hope. The Bible is a book that is full of hope. And yet throughout the Bible, you have this constant vision of the sullying of God's name and God's people and God's plans by people like you and me who are broken. Like the brokenness is just visible throughout the scriptures. And yet the promises of God from beginning to end is that God is reaching into time and into space, sacrificing his own son so that you might have the full assurance of hope, that you might inherit the promises, that you might be a person who experiences the fullness of God's peace. God's peace. That's a message of scripture that all is not lost and there is peace for us. 
Peace in the midst of suffering. Peace in the midst of trial and tribulation. Peace as we see these, these people who have inherited these promises because they've gone before us, but these people who are in jail in these dank, dark cells after receiving beatings, singing praises to Jesus, and people are standing around listening, saying, there is something seriously wrong with those people. Who sings in jail? Who sings after a beating? Who sings in chains? People who know they are inheriting promises. People who know all is not lost. People who know a peace deeper than any peace you could receive from this world. People who know Jesus. So hold fast, fast to the promises of God. So let's take a look at verses 17. Um, Let's look at the text today. So verses 13 through 16 is where we're going to begin. The heart of this text, our our whole text today is 13, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. The heart of the text is 17 through 18, but there's some setup to get there. And so he gives us this, verses 13 And following, it says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. If you've got a pen and you've got your own Bible, underline that. Surely I will bless and multiply you. That's the promise. And thus, Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise for people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their dispute an oath is a final confirmation. Now, now some of this is, is maybe not surprising and some of it might be confusing depending on kind of where you are and how much of the Bible that you've read. And so let me try to make sense of it. We don't really... It's hard to skip town these days, right? Like I can... Google everyone's face, and there's more information on you than at any time. And so the idea of making an oath or making a promise and attaching it to someone else really isn't necessary. If you go to buy a new car, and they put the contract in front of you, what do you do? You sign it, right? You just sign your name. You're just like, Jordan will do this. And they know that there's no way Jordan's skipping town because he's not that good with the computer, Right, we'll track him down. We'll get our money. Right, that's that's what's happening there. And so there's really not the same sense in which in the ancient world, like you didn't do that. Like you, you leave town, you go somewhere else. There's no Google. There's no Facebook. There's no like there, there are no collection calls in the ancient world. And so there's this necessity that if somebody's going to, especially if it's a big promise, you're going to buy a, a new donkey, I don't know, whatever would be in the ancient world, signing the dotted line, you could still skip, hop that donkey and be off to the next town. But instead, what you would do is you would swear by the God, and the God would hold you accountable. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? I mean, we see this a little bit today. When somebody is sworn into office, like a political office, a president or a senator or whatever, you, you're in court, they put your hand on the Bible, you swear that you will tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And the idea is that because you are swearing on Scripture, the God of Scripture will hold you accountable to breaking or keeping that oath. And so what is being said here is that God makes a big promise to Abraham, especially since Abraham's like 70 when God comes to make it. And he says, listen, you're going to have some kids. And he says, yo, I'm 70, I don't want you. I'm just kidding, he probably, he did. I was just... Suddenly remembering my own parenthood. (laughs) Uh, I'll bless you and multiply you. Make your name great. You'll be the father of many nations. And Abraham and Sarah are like, dude, we're like, we're ancient. (laughs) Like, this is going to happen. Go to a land that I'm going to show you. Really, can we get more details? 
I mean, this is a big promise. In fact, I was thinking really hard. I was trying to sort of wrap my mind around, like, what would be an equivalent? An equivalent of the promise that, that, or what God is asking. I decided that the quickest and most ready available equivalent would be that what God is asking, uh, asking Abraham to do is to leave earth and to go populate a planet in the gamma quadrant. Like, this is the only... Star Trek, anyone? Thank you, thank you. I like Star Trek, and that's what I wanted to do. So live with it. This is what it is. This idea that, like, I mean, try to put yourself in Abraham's spot for a second. Like, there is no maps. When I was a kid, before Google, you had a big atlas. Does anybody still have the atlas in their car? We still keep one because I just, I don't trust. I'm, the grid's going down. I know we're all lost. Aliens are going to attack. Something terrible is going to happen. I've got the atlas. But you had the atlas. They didn't have the atlas. They had roots, trails, and that's all there was to it. And God says, go and I'll tell you when to stop. I mean, that is a big deal. That is terrifying. I mean, imagine how afraid you are to pick up and move to another city today to start a new job. Imagine you're Abraham. So much bigger. And if you think about it, if you've ever been tempted to, to doubt Scripture, if you've ever been tempted to doubt God's promises, you've ever been tempted to think, well, maybe this, all this stuff is just kind of like old fiction. It's an old book. It's an old tale. God makes this promise to Abraham. I will bless you and I will multiply you. And 4,000 years later, in a city thousands and thousands of miles away, People who are speaking a language that Abraham never knew have gathered together here at Oakland Drive Christian Church sitting in lawn chairs to declare that they are the sons and daughters of Abraham. I mean, that's an incredible thought. There are no Hittites here in Portage today. But there are people here who call themselves the children of Abraham. If you have any doubt of God's promises, his veracity, his ability to keep his word, take a look in the mirror And say, I am Abraham's son. I am Abraham's daughter. God fulfills his promises. Part of faith is definitely trust. There's a trust here that has to happen. So, what we see here is God filling out that promise, bringing it forward. And the author here is saying, God couldn't swear by anyone else, so he swore by his own name. He would deliver the promise. And here we have the promise that you would um, receive these, uh, these promises and this oath. So here we go to the next, verses 17 and 18. So here's kind of the heart of the text. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, so that's, that's us, heirs of the promise. Lost my spot, there it is. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it by an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see that text riddled with optimism, riddled with confidence, riddled with surety, riddled with encouragement, To say over and over again, seize the promises of God. Hold fast to the oath of God, for God is faithful. He cannot lie. And there are two things that are brought forward here in which God cannot lie. And the first is God's purpose. 
When God sets his mind on something, that something transpires. It happens. God set his mind on furthering Abraham himself, and it happened. God planned promises for Abraham's inheritance, inheritors, and it happened. God planned for our salvation through Jesus Christ, and it happened. There are deep questions that circle around this. I mean, questions about the bigness of God's purposes. Does that travel into our everyday lives when I think about predestination and free will? And I'm not going to talk about those things at all because those miss the point. They miss the point. This is directly looking at us and saying, there is something that is laid before us and it is a blessing. And blessing is a weird word in English because all the preachers use it. And we all mean something different by it. And frequently when we think of blessings, we think of possessions. Um, We think of uh, um, cars and whatever. You know, Abraham's there and he's praying to God. But recognize that in Abraham's culture, his understanding of blessings would have been different than our understandings of blessings. Because Abraham never knew the joy of Amazon boxes full of books (laughs) waiting for him when he got home, right? This is not, this is a blessing for Jordan. This is not necessarily a blessing for Abraham, right? So we see the word blessing. I, I, we need to be culturally aware, right? We need to recognize that this might not be what, what, is, what is being offered here. And, and that's important because I just talked about a little bit. I'm going to take him down because you can't focus with Abraham and Amazon. Blessing, I think, is far more akin to shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word, for many of you already know that, but shalom is a Hebrew word that means peace. And peace we think of as as the opposite, opposite of conflict, and it isn't just the opposite of conflict. We might use the word wholeness. We can be made whole. And I don't know what that means for you. Some of us, it means resurrection because our bodies are broken and it's just not going to get fixed. Some of us, it means the bitterness in our soul that is eating us away that makes you just a jerk to everyone. That, that bitterness, that jerkness is at the top. It's the scum on top, but there's a wound underneath. The wholeness can be brought to that. Some of you have just missed your priorities. You are so lost going around doing other things, and God is not really first. God can heal all of these things. He can bring a fullness to our life. And I think that's the ultimate, that's the blessing that he's talking about. It isn't Amazon boxes, right? It is, it is that, that blessing of peace so that, again, you can be like those early Christians who were fed to lions and yet praised God. Because their joy was so deep. Their confidence was so strong. Their victory was so assured. It didn't matter what was coming at them, whether it's a hungry lion or it's a gladiator or it's a cross or it's sickness or it's cancer or it's old age or it's sorrow or it's brokenness of any kind. Whatever it is, they looked at it and they said, Jesus went there first. He'll take me through too. That's a confidence of blessing that no one else can offer you. That's a confidence of blessing that we are being given, that God will fulfill his purpose and bring us to shalom. He will bring us to peace. The second thing in which God can ally is his promises. When God promises, so God has set in mind an avenue of salvation. That avenue of salvation is Jesus. He set that in motion. It happened. Nothing could stop it. And his oath is if you walk in that same path, Jesus will be your door to God's grace. Jesus will be the door to God's grace. And that's an important word 
I was thinking about this, and this will, will wax theoretical for a moment, but I was thinking about why it says that God cannot lie, because you always think of God can do everything, right? I mean, God's God. If he wants to lie, he can lie. I mean, I lie all the time, right? It's not entirely true. <laughs> Don't put that on Facebook. But I mean, we all lie, right? I mean, every, yes? God, why couldn't God lie? So I was thinking about this. And so I, I have a theory, and I want to share the theory with you, and you can think about it the next time you're, um, I don't know, whatever. So anyway, God creates the universe with a word, right? In the beginning, God said, and it was. So light, land, people, everything. God just speaks. We receive this revelation within the New Testament uh, that Jesus is the word, which is kind of mind-blowing to think about, right? A word that is a person, but it's a word, but it's also attached to a thought, right? Because logos is the thought of God in John. Like that's, the, that's what the word means. It's the thought of God that's then emanating into the universe. And so we know that the word that God spoke from Genesis is Jesus. And Colossians, Paul talks about Jesus being the word of God through whom, in whom, by whom, and for whom all things were made. You with me so far? I lose anyone? And so because Jesus is the word, he is the thing that created all, all of this. All of your lovely faces. All of this. Created by God's word. And this is true. What you look around, what you touch, the, the, the car that you're getting close, there, there's truth there in that material. There's truth there in that reality. That, that God's very word founds the basis of the reality that we experience in our lives. Jesus is, he says, the way, the truth, and the life. The truth. And when Pilate says, well, what is truth? Jesus says, my word is truth. Right? I am truth. And so for God to say something that was untrue would in some real way unmake reality. Like it would undo the things that are real. Because as he speaks, reality happens. If he lies, reality stops happening. I was up really late thinking about that. Maybe that makes sense. Either way, God cannot lie. He lays down the oath, and the oath, as we see throughout Scripture, is true. And it has an outcome, a particular outcome. And we see this outcome here in verses 19 through 20, which is this. We, which is a blank slide, which is this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner places behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And some of you are like, what just happened in that sentence? It's okay. It's all right. That's next week. Don't get bogged down in it. But for this week, let's just say what it's saying is that Jesus stepped into the presence of God to plead on your behalf. Does that make sense? Jesus stepped into God's presence and said, you, this guy Jordan, who is the kind of jerk who says, oh, I'm Jordan, I'm, my spiritual gift is skepticism, like an idiot, who tells lies and declares it in the middle of church, who does all kinds of horrible things. I am saying he is a part of us. He is my son. I say we forgive him. Forgiven, right? God steps in the midst of us. Jesus steps in the place and he allows us 
allows us into the presence and peace of God. And so that's what's happening here. And so because of that, we have the steadfast anchor of hope. Isn't that what Jesus says? Jesus is, he says in John uh, something, John 10, 7. Uh, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. You and I are sheep. I am the door. If enter, anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find good pasture. He uses this metaphor, but in this way, very much so. If Jesus is the one who stands before God, you have to go through Jesus. He is the door. He is the one by which we can enter into the presence of God. There is no other door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one that went into the inner place. He's the one that laid down his life for our sins. He is the only way, which is why we constantly are pressing in on this and saying not only if you are here today and you haven't gotten your life right with God, you need to, you must. There is no other way for peace. And if you have your life right with God, you must be the agent that goes out into that world and says, I have experienced peace, and I want you to know Jesus is the door. He's the only way. And so that calling comes forward out of this steadfast anchor word. That like we have this ability to, to lock into Jesus in such a way that we can have that full assurance, that confidence Let's say that optimistic look at the world. I don't know what's coming tomorrow for you. I don't know if it's a raise or it's cancer. I hope it's one and not the other, but I don't know. How do you face tomorrow? I was listening to NPR uh, this week, and uh, um, they were interviewed talking about uh, the economic collapse a few years back and how it, you know, threw everyone in a tailspin. And this person had called and was talking about it and said, I live in constant fear, constant fear of what's going to happen next, constant fear of, um, of the next collapse. Listen, if you don't realize that your life uh, in a moment can change economically, health-wise, family, everything is up for grabs. I Anything could happen. And I was listening to this guy and my heart broke for him because I was like, what a horrible way to live. He's, he's right on. He's right on the money. Like, you, like, the world is a tower of Jenga blocks. Like, if you aren't watching the news and knowing this, right, all you got to do is pull one of those bad boys out and the whole thing goes down. We're convinced that we have the Tower of Babel built. But let me tell you what. One push and the thing goes over. He's, he's right on the money in understanding the world as it is, but he is broken and not recognizing that shouldn't cause us fear. We should be the people that aren't afraid of that tower going down. It's not like we want to see it tip over, but just saying that does not cause us the kind of fear because our focus, our fixture, our anchor is on Jesus who went into the high place, who brought us peace with God, who has gone through death and up from the grave again so that we don't even fear death itself. If all of that is true, what optimistic look should you have tomorrow morning? What victory should you have? You be walking in tomorrow morning. What encouragement? We've fled for refuge. I love that line. Where is it? It's there, right? No? Eighteen and my one back. Nope. Abraham. Ignore Abraham. Yes, there it is. I love this. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement 
to hold fast to the hope set before us. That's a good word, isn't it? That is a good word. That is the kind of word that can bring you the kind of peace that allows you to face tomorrow, whatever comes. And what I love about Scripture, what I've been learning about Scripture this week is I've been uh, reading through it, and it has been revealing to me just how, how much hope sings in these texts and calls us to respond and hope. I like this, uh, this anchor of the soul bit. And I think when we think about the anchor of the soul... We think that the way an anchor works is, you know, when you, when, you, when you drop that anchor, it keeps you from smashing into the shore, right? Keeps you from smashing into the rocks. But I picked up this little insight from Charles Spurgeon in which he talks about how anchors don't just do that. They also secure the boat, right? So the, the, the idea of the anchor is not just that you don't smash into the shore, but that you're not like whipped from this side to that side in an angry sea. It, it, it anchors you in such a way that the boat is going to move. Like, man, life is hard. Life is hard. And you're going to get moved left and right, back and forth. The waves are going to take you up and down. Things will get rocky. Uh, but the anchor drop forward, drop down, keeps us from moving too much. It keeps us secure in such a way that even as the waves roll, even as it pushes us and strives to break us free, if our tether is built into the rock of Jesus and his word, then there is hope. There's the kind of hope that allows us to lift up hands in victory when we pray. Not hands of defeat, not hands of surrender, but the hands that say Jesus has overcome it all and he is on our side, fighting with us, for us. He is saving us, he is redeeming us, he is sanctifying us, he is moving us forward, he is calling us to give up more and more so that we can have more and more victory. Raise your hands. Thank you. Because in Jesus is great victory and great hope. And if you have fled to him for rescue, he will rescue you. And whatever you're facing tomorrow, he will be your peace. And if you need somebody to walk with you and to pray with you, our elders will be kind of off the sides here, standing off to the sides. They would love to pray with you. If you don't know really a whole lot about this Jesus thing and you need to flee to him for refuge, Because you recognize the futility, the vanity, and the meaninglessness of life. And you need to find meaning. I invite you to come and talk to them. They can point you in the direction of Jesus. Let's stand and sing.